if you would, uh, what am I? Am I too too windy? Am I? It's not the first time I've been told that. Let's see if I can. You know, I I am. Uh, I got my contacts on. I don't know if this is happening. It might not. So I don't know. You want to try? I, uh, I'm just gonna make you suffer. We'll we'll do it for second hour. Okay. Well, this, uh, if you have not already turned there, I would like to invite you to turn to Second Peter as we begin this morning a new journey that unfolds certain truths as found in this book. If we are to receive as much benefit from this particular study as possible, I think it would do first, it would do us well to first understand, and as best we can, you ready for this? I want us to try to experience this book as it would have first been experienced by those who heard it. So what do I mean by that? Well, while we call this book, the book of 2 Peter, is more accurately an epistle. An epistle is just a a letter that was composed by Peter, and then it was handed to a messenger who then brought it to various churches. And the first thing those various churches would do, most likely the elders would read that letter themselves, And then they would stand up before the congregation and they would read the letter in its entirety before it would then be discussed. Therefore, as we begin our study this morning, because this is not an incredibly long book, I wish to do that for you. I wish to publicly read the book of 2 Peter to you. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read. I will not make you stand for this, not that it's terribly long, but you can follow along and and remain seated. I want to remind you that these are the words given by the Lord himself to Peter in order to instruct, encourage, and correct the people of God. Before I read the text to you, I've offered a very simple outline that's not necessarily uh, an outline that I would use all the time for 2 Peter, but it's what I want to kind of point out to you this morning. And so you will be able to kind of pick this out as I go through the letter chapter 1, to know the wonder and certainty of our salvation. In chapter 2, we note the reality of false teachers. And chapter 3, that we will know of the coming judgment of the Lord. So be blessed by the hearing of God's word as I read for you this letter of Second Peter, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ is made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have, this, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as, all, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. 
suffering wrong as the wages of wrongdoing. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed to, on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Chapter 3. This is, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, 
which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said. <clears throat> we come to this book called Second Peter, the second letter of Peter. And you know where that name comes from? Well, it comes from Peter. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, This is now, beloved, my what? My second letter I'm writing to you. And so we call it the second letter of Peter. We ought to be familiar with 1 Peter, a book that we studied several years ago, but we need to note that Peter writes uh, both of these letters to essentially the same group of people. They're written about two and a half years apart. In Peter's first letter, we learn that these beloved believers are those who he identifies reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And that's found in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Those are regions that we would identify with now modern Turkey. So if you were to look on a map, you would see that. While it is apparent that Peter is writing to the same audience, these two letters are quite different from one another. Each have a distinct purpose. The purpose of the first letter was to address and advise believers, how do you live in light of the persecution that's coming upon the church? You see, the church has always been under some form of persecution. Uh, some of us have lived long enough to, to recognize we had some pretty uh, interesting days in our, in our generation that are quickly leaving as the church is becoming more and more the target of persecution. Well, Peter writes to that in his first letter and how they ought to live in light of persecution that's coming in from the outside. And, and we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I think that should be up there if you'll click that again for me. He writes this, beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised, he says, at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He's talking about the persecution that's coming on. And sometimes even in our day, we're like, why? Why would the Lord allow this? But it shouldn't surprise us. God's people should expect persecution. He goes on to say, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, who was what? Persecuted. Keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. In other words, in light of the great glory that awaits us, if we are in Christ, the hope of glory that awaits believers with the return of Christ, believers are to endure and must endure the present persecution, do so, doing so with anticipation and rejoicing, knowing that the Lord Jesus has suffered the same things, and the Lord Jesus promised the same things, and the Lord Jesus said, I will be back to take you out from these things. Well, the purpose of the second letter is not to address persecution, but a problem that had arisen in the church. And the problem was false teachers. And we're familiar with this because we just studied Jude. False teachers were creeping in and leading many astray from the knowledge of the truth. Peter exhorts them how to live in light of such problems. P 
Peter wants them simply stated to know the truth and then to grow in the practice of godliness. Our whole Christian experience is based on those two single principles, to know the truth according to God and then to grow in the, in the practice of godliness. That theme is stated as the crown jewel of this letter. It actually serves as the purpose or mission statement of our own church in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where we read, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Beloved, this again, our theme verse of our own church, it is our desire to be a people. It ought to be our desire to say, God, help us know the truth. Help us live out that truth to grow in the grace that leads to godliness. But in addition to those differences, the letters also are different in content. In his first letter, Peter does not mention false teachers at all. And yet the entire second chapter of 2 Peter is devoted to that very theme. Peter is intent on combating false teaching and false teachers, devoting that entire chapter and even parts of chapter 3 to the subject. As we'll come to see what Peter addresses in chapters 1 and 3 actually flow from a concern that false teaching was taking hold in the church. How do you combat false teaching? Know the truth. How do you live in light of false teaching? Grow in godliness. I'd also have you note that First and Second Peter are different in style. Peter quotes extensively from the Old Testament throughout First Peter, and yet sparingly in the second. In First Peter, uh, Peter addresses a broad audience. If you're familiar with it, he addresses specifically uh, uh, people at various stations of life. He addresses servants. He addresses wives. He addresses husbands. He addresses citizens. But in the second letter, Peter doesn't make those distinctions. It is broad. It is to the entire church. It doesn't matter where you find yourself. These are truths that you must pursue. These are things that we must know. In 1 Peter, Peter makes very, li very little mention of anything personal about himself, any of his life experiences. And yet in 2 Peter, Peter is intent to tell you all the things that have gone on in his life and where he finds himself. If you'll note, in chapter 1, verse 15, 14, Peter actually speaks of the imminence of his death. He believes that he is on the verge of going into the presence of the Lord. In chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, he refers to what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? We see that in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus was transformed. Peter beheld Christ in his glory. And in chapter 3, verse 16, Peter refers to the Apostle Paul. He makes note, by the way, that he's read the Apostle Paul. He actually makes note that sometimes when you read the Apostle Paul, you scratch your head and go, what have I just read? Anybody in here been there? But when he says that these are hard things to understand, he's simply saying Paul was deep and the things that he spoke of were profound and they're worthy of our attention. There are even some subtle differences in the vocabulary between First and Second Peter. As to who wrote this letter... Well, who do you think? <laughs> Peter. He identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant of an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no reason to doubt that. There are those who have tried to doubt it, but these are the words of Peter, who for three and a half years walked with our Lord Jesus Christ, beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. 
I've already alluded to the theme of our study of knowing and growing in Christ, but the series will simply be entitled Growing in Grace, Growing in the Knowledge of the Truth and the Practice of the Truth. As we seek to take a quick tour through 2 Peter, we find Peter repeatedly calling his readers to know Jesus and by the knowledge of Christ say pray that you be transformed by that, that your life reflects those truths. Be transformed by the salvation that has been secured for you by Christ. There's an emphasis in this letter on knowing the truth, being grounded and firm in the truth, being unwavering in the truth, as there are those who strive to do what? Can I just pause and make the, 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 the cultural commentary? Name one thing in our culture that isn't trying to strip the truth away from you, trying to strip the truth away from our children. And so Peter's letter is so incredibly relevant to our day. We need to know the truth. We must be imparting the truth. We must be living the truth because everything else is trying to steal or rob the truth from us. Yet Peter is not content with simply knowing the facts. His desire for his readers is to actually be growing. How many of you plant seeds with the thought, well, I don't care if they grow or not? You sit there and you watch and you sit there and you cultivate and you water and you go out day after day and you weed because you want to see the growth. Peter is not saying just know something. He's saying do something in light of the truth and may it become all that God intends it to be. To be sure, the knowledge of the salvation of Jesus Christ is a wondrous thing. But for the believer, for you and I, salvation must be more than an intellectual exercise. We can discuss all the theological ramifications, but it's meaningless if it doesn't impact the way you live. Salvation, beloved, is life. Your salvation is new life. It is a transformed life, a life that ought to increasingly reflect rightly the person and quality and character of Jesus Christ. There's a sense from this letter that suggests that as one grows in the knowledge of Christ, they will see and experience wondrous things from God because he will be at work in them. The more you know, the more you grow. I pray that we here at Hope Community Bible Church will be intent on knowing the Lord Jesus Christ better so that we might experience more of the wonder of growing in the grace of godliness, being more and more like Jesus in our thinking, more and more like Jesus in our actions, more and more like Jesus to our neighbors, more and more like Jesus in every endeavor that we take on. This morning and then next week, we will consider an overview of 2 Peter and do so by means of two points. The first is knowing the truth, and then next week we will sum up on growing in godliness. This is just to set the stage so that as we go through verse by verse, you kind of know where we're going. So let's begin with this first idea of knowing the truth. It is a repeated theme throughout 2 Peter that believers know the truth, that they possess an increasing knowledge of the truth. Beloved, there is no spiritual growth in a stagnant knowledge of Christ. If you come here this morning and think you know enough, you don't know anything. 
Your faith is not stagnant. Your faith is to be living. Your faith is to be flowing. Your faith is to be growing in the knowledge of Christ. He who is not expanding in the knowledge of God's truth cannot progress spiritually. Peter makes it clear in this letter that no one has arrived, that there's no one, uh, that there's always more to know. There's always more to learn. Now, let's go back to chapter one, and I'd like to show you this emphasis of Peter. It is revealed right at the very beginning of the letter. He pulls no punches. He gets right to the point in chapter one, verse two, when he says this. And I love these words, grace and peace be multiplied to you, whatever the grace of God is. Whatever the peace of God is, may it be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of our Lord, of Jesus, our Lord. Peter longs from the very beginning of this letter. He longs for the grace and peace of God to so abound in the life of believers. His opening prayer is that there may be an exponential growth of grace. This, do you see the exponential idea? An exponential growth of grace and the peace of God. How is that experience? The only way to experience grace. The only way to experience the peace of God. We're not talking about feelings. We're talking about knowledge. It is to know. It is to know the Lord. It is to know his truth uh, as revealed in his word. There's um, an interesting bumper sticker back in the day that said, no and no, no God, no and no peace. And if you've seen the bumper sticker, the second half said, no, K-N-O-W, God, no peace. And that's, in a sense, what Peter's getting after. I would modify it a bit, making it a little more verbose, but that's what I do. If you know little about God, you will know little of grace and peace. If you know much about God, you will know much about grace and peace. Peter tells us that this is, this is what he's after. This is precisely where Peter takes his readers next. In verse 3, notice the emphasis on the knowledge of God. We read, seeing that his divine power, think of all the power of God. That the divine power has granted to us some things. What's it say? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has not left us impotent. God has not left us without what we need to endure persecution, to endure the problems that bring that come upon us because of sin. He has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. But how? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What a marvelous, marvelously deep and precious promise. Everything the believer needs right now today is available to you. That's what God's word says. I believe it, and it, well, it doesn't even matter if I believe it, right? There's another bumper sticker that says, you know, uh, I believe it, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It is simply God said it, that settles it. Everything you and I need is right here, and it's up to us to dig individually and together to flesh out all of that knowledge that we can so that that truth then impacts the way we live. Everything we need for a godly life, a life that pleases God, a life that is lived according to the way God intended is found in knowing him more, in knowing him better. 
It is, as Peter says, through the true knowledge of him. Beloved, there is no living for God apart from rightly knowing God. The path towards godliness begins and ends with one's knowledge of the Almighty. As your knowledge of God increases, your thinking is changed. As the knowledge of God, you, your knowledge of God increases, it impacts the way you live your life. Beloved, the knowledge of God and his ways affects your godliness. What is before us then is the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency that God has said, I have given you everything you need to live this life. Now believe me and go live the life to my glory. We see this emphasis of knowing the truth again in verse 5. We read, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. I love diligence, by the way. That's maximum effort. You know, some of us think that, you know, plotting through a, a Bible reading plan and, and keeping a prayer journal or whatever it is is that, you know, as long as I just get something in there. No, a maximum effort. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, what? Knowledge. Because you can't have moral excellence unless you know what is morally excellent. And so there must be knowledge, the knowledge of God. What does diligence look like? How can I or others see that I'm diligently pursuing the knowledge of God? Beloved, it is a pursuit Revealed in our reading of scripture, in our praying, in our listening and applying of sermons. It is the reading of good and sound Christian books. It's found in our fellowship with other believers intent, not just talking about how good the coffee tastes, but how wonderful God's word is and what we're learning from it. In short, Peter calls believers to be those who are striving to always learn, always grow, always seek to discover more. I have not even begun to plunge the depths of the mighty wonders of my God. I don't know how long you've walked with the Lord. Some of you have walked longer uh, with the Lord than I have. Some of you are more uh, recent on your journey. But I promise you this, the collective knowledge that we have of our God combined has not begun to scratch the surface. And so if we think we've arrived, Peter says, think again, grow, may grace and peace be multiplied. May it be exponential as you find the knowledge of God. I suspect most of us at some level already know these things. So what is it that can hinder or stifle this desire to grow and expand in the knowledge of God? What is it that stifles that? Beloved, a large part of our Christianity is repetition. A large part of Christianity is rehearsal. While there are always new things to learn about God, we know that what, what we know about God in general is nothing new, right? I mean, we know the basics. When we read our Bibles or sit under a sermon only to hear the same old things, we can kind of start to tune out. We start to think we're in a rut. And one of the dangers in so many churches is our pastors trying to come up with something new just to kind of startle their congregations. So I say what stifles it is we get kind of think, well, I'm just hearing the same old things. <laughs> we forget to really contemplate the, the hymn writer who said, I love to tell the story of unseen things above that, that old, old story. We need to repeat it. 
because it's in the hearing and the pushing of ourselves to hear it better, to hear it more, that we can then dig deeper and understand more about God. Because God then opens up the storehouses of treasures concerning himself. It is the experience of many of us who say, I've read that passage a hundred times. But today, for some reason, God brought something new. You wouldn't have gotten it if you hadn't read it a hundred times before. It took the 101st time to read it. So do not let repetition be that which stifles you. Say, oh, i got to do this again. It should be this time because I'm doing it again. God may bless me with something that I had not considered before. This is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1, 12, the words, Therefore, I will always be ready to do what? To remind you of these things. They've heard it over and over. Preacher, we hear you say this over and over every Sunday. It is, I am ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, he says. Why? You've been established in the truth, which is present in you. I, I know all of this. What Peter is saying is that even though his readers already know the truth, he knows this truth, that it's by the repetition going over them over and over that God works to flush out more of his knowledge of himself in our lives. So Peter reminds them, and he continues to remind his readers of the truths that they have already known, they've already been established in, they've already believed in. The truth they've been grounded in. Peter presses this further in verse 13 by saying this. Notice what he says. I consider it right. What's right? Me saying the same things over and over to remind you of that which you already know. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling. Why? To stir you up by way of reminder. I want to stir the pot. I want you to see it again so that all of a sudden now some new flavor comes out. I will remind you and I will do it over and over. Sometimes when I find myself discouraged or down, my, my wife will look at me with compassion and begin to offer a word of encouragement with the words. This is what she says to me. I know you already know this, but God's word says. And I'm like, oh. It's a humbling experience. But this is what God has called us to do. Now, very quickly, let us walk through those three points that I presented to you as we consider the knowledge of truth, knowing the truth. And then one of the first things that we are called to do is to know the wonder and certainty of our salvation. That's first, uh, Second Peter. Forgive me if I keep saying First Peter. We're in Second Peter. Just remember that, okay? Second Peter chapter 1. Love, this is why it is imperative that we gather as... The Lord has commanded us week by week to do so. Our purpose here is not primarily to learn something new. You may learn something new, but don't come here thinking my goal is to learn something new. It may happen, but rather we gather to be reminded of the truth we already know. And we are gathered to rehearse the gospel that has actually saved us. And so we say, sing it over and over to me, the wonderful words life we do this that truth may be expanded we do this so that the truth may be multiplied in our hearts and minds we we see this understanding of the rehearsing of god's truth in the life of paul when paul was in corinth you might recall he preached the gospel to them 
And he said this is of what was of first importance. So he had preached the gospel, and he continues to preach the gospel, and he never stopped preaching the gospel. And I'm sure there were some that would say, hey, Paul, uh, are we using this at all? It's gone. Yeah. Uh, there would be some that say, Paul, you've already told us this. And he said, guess what? I will give to you what is of first importance. And he does what? He gives them the gospel message, 1 Corinthians 15. Yet Paul continued to preach the gospel of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. What does he say? Those very familiar words as he reminds the Corinthians saying, I am determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. I will tell that to you day after day. Jesus Christ came. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, proving that he is Lord and Savior. Praise the Lord. Tell me again. This is the labor, the ministry, the service of the preacher. Week after week, seeking to be true to the one message that builds the true knowledge of God, that message alone being Jesus Christ and him crucified. I remind myself to remind you of that message. This does not mean I communicate to you the same exact words. This does not mean that we engage in rote liturgy that comes to sound like an endless loop uh, as the result of some computer glitch that just keeps going over and over again. May it never be. My goal is to present to you the same truths that you know, but in a fresh way, one that is related to our times, one that addresses the very places we find ourselves in individually and corporately, and so as we labor through a text verse by verse, week after week, that we come to find that there are new things about God to discover. There are additional applications which are, we are to live out as believers, but such preaching presents the truth, the same truths, and simply comes at them from various angles until we have those aha moments. I get it now. I never saw that before. And so I do remind you and myself that we are sinners. I must remind you that the only hope we have for forgiveness and pardon and reconciliation with God is through the cross of Christ. I need to remind you that your standing with God is never based on anything that you can do, either before salvation or post-salvation, that the good deeds that you might do and perform are not even close to adequate to make atonement, to pay the price for your sin. I must remind you that your only hope is found in the willingness of another who gave to you of his own good works, of his own righteousness, of his own life in your place. This is the work of Christ on the cross. I must remind you that not one of us merits our standing before God by what we do. How many times you read your Bible, how many Bible verses you memorize, how many widows or orphans you have helped, none of these as good as they may be, and even commanded to do in the scripture, none of these will add one iota of merit to your salvation. You must know that it is Christ and Christ alone. Nothing improves upon the full and final sacrifice of Christ. And so we must believe on Christ alone. And if you already believe on him, I call you to excel still more in your belief in him. 
Beloved, this is what we need to know. And this is the heart. This is the passion. This is the burden I find in this letter of Peter. We see this in the very first verse of the letter. Look again at verse 1 where he says this, chapter 1, verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. What kind of faith is this, beloved? What is the character? What is the nature of your faith? If it's true biblical faith, what does it look like? This is, it is a faith in righteousness. It is a faith in the merit, in the life of another. It is the same kind of faith in which is in the righteousness of Christ, the goodness of Christ, imputed to us, charged to our account, canceling out the infinite debt that our unrighteousness uh, has brought and crediting to us the infinite righteousness of Christ. And how is it obtained? How do we get that on our ledger? How is it that our debt is canceled and we have now this overflowing abundance of righteousness in our account? It's through faith, it says, a faith of the same kind, through believing that Christ has done this for you, trusting that since God has declared it to be so in his word, that it is so. He said it, that settles it, and I believe it. What a tragedy that so many doubt this truth. There are so many who refuse to believe this truth. There are so many who just assume that this must be made up, that such faith is the equivalent of believing in Santa Claus or the, the Easter Bunny. Is there truly, can there truly be such a Savior? Notice with me, beginning in verse 16, Peter's declaration. Chapter 1, verse 16, saying in effect that everything he has said is true that he had seen these things with his own eyes. We read in verses 16 and through 18, for we did not follow what? Cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? We saw it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we were there. Such an utterance as this was, get, was made to him by the majestic glory, and we heard it. Because I can tell you what it was. This is my beloved son uh, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Here Peter remembers. What is he doing? He's rehearsing the day. Some 40 years have passed and he's still contemplating that event when he saw the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Might I remind you, a great place for you to go is to remember the day that you met Jesus Christ and you knew that he was your Lord and Savior. Rehearse that day when you became that eyewitness of what he did in your life, of what you have now been, uh, you've come to believe and to know. It was in that place that Jesus transfigured himself before them, that Jesus was surrounded by that great white light, it says, the very glory of God shining through him. And as Jesus shone with the glorious radiance of God, it was then that God uttered those words in the hearing of these men. And they have said, here it is, I tell you the truth, this is no story. Peter did not make it up. He experienced it. The point is that what Peter says is true and that Peter tells his readers that these, these things so that they may know that their faith is the same faith of Peter and it's not built upon cleverly devised tales but the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. 
In verses 19 through 21, Peter presses the point of the truthfulness of Scripture. Why? Because of, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We need to know the truth, and that truth is contained in the word of God. And so we read in verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What is Peter saying there? Let's just make it real simple. The call is to pay attention to scripture. The call is to give priority in your life to the word of God. Why? Because if you don't know God, you can't love him. If you don't know him, you can't grow in him. Jesus in John 17, 3 said, this is eternal life that they may what? Know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom they have sent. You must have a passion, a renewed passion to know the truth according to the scriptures. All that God has said would come to pass has done so in its time. All that will come to pass will do so even as he declared. And so the question is this, beloved, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth about your salvation? Are you steadfast in your knowledge of God? Know the wonder and the certainty of your salvation. We'll flesh that out as we get verse to verse. The second point that we said, we are to know the reality of false teachers. In chapter 2, P Peter begins to warn and identifies false teachers. We see this emphasis in the very first verse of chapter 2 in verse 1. But on the heels of all this knowledge that we're supposed to desire and have available to us, but false prophets, those who would say something different, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Here, Peter warns that false teachers will do what? They'll infiltrate the church. We read in Jude, they're already what? They're already here. They will seek to lead people astray from the truth, from knowing the truth. Peter tells his readers that such false teachers are crafty. They're subtle. They introduce destructive heresies. How? Secretly. They're not going to stand in the pulpit and outright say something that is in total contradiction to what you know. They're going to do it in one-on-one -on -one situations. They're going to do it through little Bible study groups, and they're going to try to introduce these destructive heresies. Today it comes in the forms of books that are being bought by the millions of Christians. Christians who are not discerning enough to say, hey, I probably shouldn't read this book. We need to be more diligent in what we consume because what we consume will find its way out and it will begin to sometimes diminish our understanding of God. Everything must be compared to the word of God. What strikes me about this is the success that Peter says they have. The breadth that they have. We think about evangelical Christianity today, and, and uh, we don't want to be here trying to discern, uh, you know, uh, what one church believes and what certain people believe. But we do know this. We do understand that according to the word of God, false teachers in the church will have great success and will have a broad hearing. That should scare us. That means... We need to be alert and make sure that we aren't those people. 
We need to make sure that we are judging everything according to the word of God. In verse 2, it says this, that many will follow their sensuality. Not some, not a small portion, but many will be led astray. It is not some small fringe sampling, it is the many. False teachers do tremendous harm to a church, harm that will both impact from within and then from, the, from without. Verse 2 goes on to say, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. So when the false teachers come in and they make the, the, those who think they're steadfast begin to believe these heresies, now the outside world looks in and says what? Look at the hypocrites. Look at how inconsistent they are. False teachers bring that in. Those within the church are harmed and devastated by the teachings and impact of false teachers. Those outside the church who can see the inconsistencies of the false teaching do what? They mock the entirety of Christianity, labeling it as a sham because of the teachings and behaviors of the false teachers, which, by the way, according to Peter, seemingly make up more of the so-called evangelical movement, not the, major, uh, not the, the, uh, the, the converse. I don't know what I just said, so you have to make it work. <laughs> the way of truth will be maligned. Chapter 2, Peter seeks to unveil these false teachers. He uses vivid language, does he not? In, in, chap in verse 12, notice he calls them, this is real, uh, this is real gracious, right? Unreasoning animals. Just go try that sometime, your neighbor that's maybe not a believer. You're an unreasoning animal. He's calling them brute beasts. Verse 13, they are stains and blemishes like blotches on a piece of uh, clothing that you simply cannot remove. In verse 14, they're called accursed children, basically children who have no hope of growing up. In verse 17, they're referred to as springs without water and mist driven by a storm. In verse 19, they're revealed as those who promise freedom to others, but they themselves are actually what? They are slaves of corruption. And finally, to top it off, with this less than flattering portrayal of false teaching teachers, in verse 22, Peter says, It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Is that what you want? Is that what you want, people? Is that what a church should be striving for? We say, no. Well, how, what, how do we avoid it? Know the truth. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the true knowledge of God. Let me point out that in 2 Peter 2, there's not one command. I mean, these, the, 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 the disciples, the apostles, love to give commands, right? Peter, or Paul, does it all over the place, all sorts of commands. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love, give preference to one another in, in honor. I mean, he just goes command after command after command. We see commands in, in 2 Peter 1, but now in 2 Peter 2, not one command, no exhortation to action. What's the point? Peter wants believers to be resolved in their knowledge. Know what the false teachers are and know what God, who God is. We must be knowing the truth lest we be ensnared and carried away by the error of false teachers. Believers must keep this in mind as Peter informs the, them in verse 3 that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. It is ready to be revealed. 
They and all who follow false teachers are doomed. In verse 9, we read that God is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Don't ever think that they're going to win. We need to know the truth. In verse 12, there is the certainty that false teachers will not just be reprimanded. They won't just get their hands slapped. It was not just, please, would you, would you refrain from this? In verse 12, they will be destroyed, it says. Peter paints the dismal future for false teachers in verse 17 saying, the black darkness has been reserved for them. The point of knowing these things is the implication, make sure you're not joined with them. Instead, know the truth, hold on to the truth, be transformed by the truth. That is the true knowledge of God. And then finally in chapter 3, we're called to know the, the coming judgment of the Lord. As in chapter 3, we find Peter yet rehearsing many of the same themes in chapter 2, only now he includes more exhortation and application. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3. This is now, beloved, my second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Doesn't that remind you of what we read back in chapter 1 where he says, I'm, I'm going to remind you again and I'm going to keep on reminding you and now I'm going to remind you again. I'm going to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What is he saying? There's nothing new. The prophets proclaimed it. Jesus preached it. The apostles teach it. And Peter's goal is simply to say, let's get back to the basics of knowing who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what man is in sin, the remedy that's been provided by Christ in Christ alone. In chapter 3, Peter reminds them of the truth of the coming future judgment that awaits all who reject and or fall away from the truth. In verse 3 and 4, Peter includes a truth that believers need to know. Notice what it says in verse 3. He begins with that, that command, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You think they've got the upper hand. You think that maybe, well, what if they're right? If it contradicts God's word, know this, beloved, their day is coming. The last days will come and they will mock with their mocking. And what is the content of their mocking? They are denying that a future judgment is coming because of their twisted perversities that they proclaim. In verse 4, that they are those who are saying, where is the promise of what? His coming. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, Peter and Paul, I'm telling you, from my understanding of Scripture, Peter and Paul expected the return of Christ in their lifetime. That was 2,000 years ago. That's because they taught the doctrine of the imminent return, that it can happen at any time. But it's God who determines when he will come again. And so now it's been going on forever since the fathers fell asleep. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But what ought to capture our attention in that statement is Peter identifies their problem, not as being ignorant of the truth. There is no true atheist. There is no true atheist. These are not those who are ignorant of the truth. Rather, they're denying that which is to come because they deny what they know happened in the past. There is a lie in thinking for everyone has 
for everything has been same from the beginning. That's a lie in their thinking. They deny the truth that they know that God created the heavens and the earth, speaking it into existence, according to verse 5. They deny that God previously destroyed the world with a flood, according to verse 6. And therefore, the day that God will come again and destroy the world with fire, they deny that again in verse 7. They deny the truth that in their willful embracing of the lie, they mock his delay in returning. They would fail to realize God's purpose. Why did God delay? Why is God? De- Do you know that if because God delayed his return, the return of Christ, that's why we're here today? Because God is patient and not willing that any should perish, but all to come to repentance, that's, that's, you're blessed by that delay. We're blessed by what theologians call the parousia, the return, the parousia delay. Thank you, Lord. The purpose in the delay is that God is giving believers ample time to repent because he doesn't desire that any would perish but all come to repentance. This is the truth. This is the knowledge that Peter wants his readers to know. This is what the Holy Spirit wants you to remember today. At the end, Peter ends the the theme of this knowing the truth by exhorting his readers in what they do know. Look at the end of verse 17 where we read, You therefore, beloved, what does it say? Knowing this beforehand, knowing about the false teaching, knowing about all of this, be on your guard, there's the command, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. Each one of us needs to know that except for the grace of God, we would fall. We add nothing to our salvation. It is Christ who saves. And if you are saved, you seek to be steadfast, but you know that your steadfastness is still a gift from God. And so we are on our guard because if that's not true, then we need to reevaluate our relationship to the living God. Beloved, the antidote to those who deny the coming judgment of the Lord is the knowledge of God. It is to know the word of God and to believe it. To know the promise that he has made in verse 13. And what is that promise? He has said there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And then we start saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come. There will be no election for a, 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 a house speaker in God's economy. There will be no more rigged elections. Peter wants us to be those who know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It is the knowledge of God that leads to salvation. It's the knowledge of God that allows us to identify and avoid false teachers. And it is the knowledge of God that informs us of the dismal future that awaits those who deny the truth of Jesus as well as then to allow us to delight in a future that is for those of us who believe on him. I pray that you know Christ today. If you do not, I invite you to speak with me after the service, and let's get that remedied. And if you do know him today, then I ask you to plead with the Lord, Lord, help me know you better. Help me know you more. Help me trust you so that I might serve you more completely. Let us be those who put into practice but grow in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth.
that is contained in this letter. Help us to delight in it. Help us to learn it. And then help us to apply it. We ask in Jesus' name.